From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. Things are changing so quickly, and there's so many new sets of tools that it really is super important to take this time to develop yourself as a leader and as a worker. That's Craig Weberg on why you should attend the Financial Conference March 5th through 7th in Nashville. We'll hear more from Craig later in the show. We'll also hear from Tom Campanella on finding opportunity in healthcare disruption. But first, a word from our sponsor. Microsoft Excel's pivot table feature is a fast and powerful way to analyze and consolidate large amounts of data and quickly extract critical knowledge. You can learn how to integrate pivot tables into your medical practice at an online seminar January 28th and 29th. During this workshop, presenter Nate Moore will provide a hands-on demonstration and answer questions on how to use this essential tool to analyze your organization's revenue cycle. For more information or to register, search Pivot Table at mgma.com slash store. MGMA's Financial Conference is an industry-leading event designed to arm healthcare professionals with the education and tools needed to run a more profitable and efficient practice. Year after year, the Financial Conference brings together leading financial experts from across the healthcare spectrum to dig deep into pertinent topics like payer contracting, business intelligence, and revenue cycle management. Here with more on what to expect at this year's conference is Craig Weberg. Craig is a senior editor for MGMA and serves as the lead content strategist for MGMA's live events. Craig, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, you're going to be talking about the financial conference. So, I know that uh, MGMA has quite a few events that uh, people can go to face-to-face, but tell us a little bit about the financial conference. What's it about and who would benefit from attending it? Yeah, great question, Daniel. The, uh, there's some spring conferences that where we really, really focus on topical areas. So we've got the financial conference, the operations conference, and the data conference. This financial conference is taking place uh, March 5th through 7th. and it's very specific to financial professionals within the healthcare administration field. So we really tailor to certified public accountants, uh, titles such as CFO, practice administrators, finance directors, um, billing office managers. So there's a, there's kind of a wide breadth of financial information that's delivered here in this conference, but it's you know it's very specific to these roles inside of medical practices. Okay. Now, you've told me in previous conversations that of all the events you work on for MGMA, this is your favorite one. I'm just curious, why is that? I think some of that is that this was the first one that I planned. Uh, So I planned financial conferences. I started about five years ago, and this was the the first one that I was given um, the opportunity to plan. So I've had a really great chance to watch this thing develop over the last five years or so and grow quite honestly you know when I was starting five years ago we were at maybe 350 attendees and last year we had over 550 uh, financial professionals at this the the other thing that I really like about this conference is the passion of the attendees you know 
I think that this is one of the most packed schedules that we have out of any of the conferences that we put on. We've got um, eight different concurrent session time slots and we've got two general session time slots. So a lot, and then actually um, some pre-conferences and a post-conference as well. And it never, it never ceases to amaze me of how many people are attending all of these con all of these sessions and consuming all of this information and you know just the passion and, and their attention I think is really great to watch take place on site. Mm -hmm. Now the the financial conference it it's very specific. It has some educational sessions that really are geared to people at practices that are dealed with the financial aspects of it. So walk us through that. I mean, what are the kind of educational sessions there? What can somebody expect if they're considering attending? So I like to say that there are really two foundational elements of the topical areas. And those first and foremost are revenue cycle management. So we have a complete track through these eight concurrent sessions that talk about different elements of the revenue cycle from the macro level down to the micro level where we're talking about denial rates we're talking about business intelligence we're talking about uh, artificial intelligence collections so very very deep into revenue cycle management the other um, kind of core topical area that we talk about here is payer contracting and how do you all the way from we've got a, a pre-conference session that really goes into how to look at contracts and how to read contracts and how to find out where areas for opportunity for improvement or risk mitigation are in these contracts then through the concurrent um, lineup in payer contracting we've got you know the ability uh, or just thoughts of how to build a value proposition and how to create better relationships with your payers. And the last couple of years, that's extended beyond just traditional fee-for-service contracting into value-based care and what those contracts look like and, and specifics on bundled payments, capitation, you know, different elements. Um, each of these contracts are very different to read. They're very different to negotiate to. And it's just very in-depth information about kind of all of that. Now, beyond that, we go a little bit deeper and, and, and have some other topics that are of interest as well. I, I mentioned like business analytics. So how do we use data and how do we manipulate and analyze data to help us do revenue cycle management and payer contracting better? Mm -hmm. Then also just there's uh, some other sessions that would appeal to the CPA, CFO types of how to mitigate risk, how to... Um, you know, best practices in accounting. Just we really focus in on all of the topics that are going to be of interest to this particular topic or this particular group. Mm -hmm. Now, you said that you have been working on the financial conference for five years now. I know that it's important to always evolve the content. We get do a lot of uh, attendee evaluations. We get feedback from MGMA members and other healthcare professionals to, you know, learn what they really want to know. So what's new about this show? What have you changed or designed this year to meet those needs? It's a great question. Uh, 
we do use the evaluations to make sure that we are meeting the mark. We also continually scan the environment to make sure that any new topics that become pertinent are addressed. Um, you know, I would say some of the things that are new, um, we talk about how to administer and how to change our business practices to be, be profitable and thriving inside of value-based care. I'd say that we've got some more mature systems that are sharing their best practices when it comes to that. Um, business analytics certainly is becoming more and more popular and I think that it's becoming more mature and we're finding different ways to go about using data in, in better ways. Um, other things that are new, um, we are talking about topics such as um, AI and artificial intelligence and we hear that in the news but what does it exactly mean you know how can we use that is that something that goes beyond just a interesting thing in the news to, and how are people using that and implementing that and we've got some examples of of how they are so that's you know those are some of the new things um, I would say one of the other new things that we're putting together is that I mentioned that this group really loves their education and as a uh, kind of a response to that, we actually added a one more session. Previously, we had been in seven sessions. Now we're in eight, which is, you know, we want to give you guys what you want. You tell us that you want more education, and we're going to bring that to you. So it just gives us the ability to even go deeper mm -hmm. into these key topics. Yeah. One of the things that you and I have both seen um, in those evaluations is that our audience doesn't always want to be passive, you know, a passive participant in these educational sessions. Sometimes they want to get interactive. They want to problem solve themselves. We found that's a great way for them to learn. Are there going to be opportunities for them to do that at TFC this year? There will be, you know, we, we schedule in breaks that um, allow people to meet with each other and talk with each other. It's one of the best things about being in an on-site conference I think that really is the differentiator you know you get to meet people that are going through the same things as you every day so we've we have receptions and we've got networking abilities and, and events to do that we also are encouraging our speakers to add a little bit more of that inside the sessions you know we will have them challenge the audience to talk for a minute or two about how this uh, topic that's being addressed in the session pertains to the attendees. So there'll be a little bit of, of that. Um, some other things that we're asking of our speakers are, we really are looking to elevate the level of the content. Meaning we don't just want them to tell, you know, tell us about it or tell why we should be interested in it. We've challenged them to bring it to the next level of, we know that it's important. If it's here, it's an important topic now what how do i implement it so we've challenged our speakers to bring tools and to show people not only what the problem is but what are solutions that have been implemented and and tools to help implement those solutions so you know we're really trying to elevate and 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 bring that better experience and better education to the attendees mm -hmm. now one of the big draws for live events are the general session speakers so who do we have on tap? What are some of the topics that are going to be covered there this year? 
So for the financial conference, we've got two different general session speakers. We have uh, Sarah Ross, who is going to be going Thursday night on March 6th. And I really enjoy uh, working with the general session speakers because everything else that we do, all the concurrence, I really focus in on, you know, tangible and tactical information of application. I think it's really important for, you know, everybody to be able to take a step back and look at some different things that will help you grow as a leader, you know? So Sarah Ross is going to be talking about how to take care of yourself. She's talking about the energy revolution and, and actually allowing yourself to recharge is so important. You know, the stuff that you do every day is so important that, um, you need to allow yourself to recharge and she's got a great program to talk about how to do that. I know Daniel, you're a very much into that and I'm, I'm sure you can um, appreciate that message. It's, you know, you got to take care of yourself if you're going to do your best at work. Absolutely. And then on Saturday, we, it's the very last session. Mm -hmm. um, We've got Heather McGowan who is talking, and I was just fortunate enough to be just be at a conference um, this week where I saw her speak, and she is um, has engaged in some academic activities and research where she talks about, you know, what are the skills that are needed in this next generation to thrive, and how can we think about our workforce and how to develop those skills to build the best team. And I really like that because it gives you some insight as a leader of what are the skills that you need. I mean, she really emphasizes lifelong learning. You know, you're not going to hire somebody in to in a in entry level or somebody that's in a succession plan that's going to just be ready to do it right away. But there are skills that you can look for and that you can develop and that you can um, cultivate that would you know, are going to be really beneficial to your team, to your organization. And I just really liked her message. I think that she did a great job of showing you, um, you know, what those new skills like change, adaptability, um, lifelong, the ability to be a lifelong learner. So I think it's an important message. And one of the things I really liked her with that she was saying is that um, don't feel like that you're done learning when you're in your 40s or your 50s or your 60s. She backs up some of this academic, uh, some of these uh, um, claims with academic research that shows you that some of your best living is happening and some of your best learning and work is done in these later, um, you know, 40s, 50s and 60s. And I thought that was really encouraging. Yeah, that that reminds me of a Bob Dylan line. He said, "He not busy learning is busy dying." So mm -hmm. uh, I think that really speaks to that uh, keynote address. And it sounds like you've got some great speakers there for the lineup. And just wanted to ask you one final thing: What are your final thoughts on what you're excited about for this year? Something that's going on at TFC, and really why healthcare professionals should attend to this this year's show? Well. As a country music fan, um, Nashville is going to be fantastic. I don't know if people have been, you know, the audience has been to Nashville, but it is a great city. It's so alive and it's so much fun. So that I'm super excited about. But, you know, we talked about this earlier. This is my favorite conference, right? And yeah. we also just talked about the need to be a lifelong learner. 
You know, things are changing so quickly and there's so many new sets of tools that it really is super important to take this time to develop yourself as a leader and as a worker. Um, you know, there is a lot to learn and knowing how to do these new skills does make a difference. Um, I really pride myself in the speaker lineup delivering content and education that is meaningful and that will make a difference. And I challenge these speakers to show me the data of why these changes are making a difference. So I think all those things together, you know, makes this a really great conference and I'm excited about it. I think that it's going to be a great time and I, you know, hope to see everybody there. All right. Well, Craig, thanks so much for sharing these thoughts and ideas with us. Uh, TFC is just a great show, having gone there last year, and um, excited to hear you talk about it and what's going on there. So just thanks so much for joining us today. You're very welcome, and thank you, Daniel. Over the next several episodes, you'll hear from a number of featured financial conference speakers. In fact, we're joined by one today, Tom Campanella, who will lead a session on disruption in healthcare. Tom has nearly 30 years of industry experience and is currently a health economics professor and the director of healthcare business programs at Baldwin Wallace University in Ohio. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the podcast today. Thank you, Daniel. I'm excited to be part of it. Now, you and I have corresponded quite a bit already, and um, I've learned some of your vast experience in healthcare, but I wanted you to share some of that with our audience. Tell us a little bit about your journey and where your focus is these days. Okay, uh, thanks. Uh, I've actually been in healthcare for over 35 years. And uh, the fun part for me is I've been in uh, very diverse sectors of healthcare, which uh, I sort of use a puzzle analogy like a puzzle. It, it, uh, you find out, especially in this new world of healthcare, how they fit together a lot. So I started off uh, actually with Ernst & Young doing healthcare consulting uh, back in the early 80s. And, um, and then I moved over to uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Ohio, which is now Medical Mutual. And uh, it was, we were pretty cutting edge as it relates to uh, healthcare and managed care during that period of time. And I was the, uh, for 13 years, I was a vice president of healthcare finance and care management, which got me into both uh, all the reimbursement models, the payer side of the, you know, the equation, but also uh, with product development and care management. So the doctors and nurses reported to me. So it was, uh, really a fun and um, interesting and challenging time to be in healthcare. Then um, in the late 90s, around 97, I actually did a sort of a little switch from a career standpoint and I became the Associate Dean of Ohio University's uh, School of Osteopathic Medicine, which is where I went to uh, undergraduate and graduate school. And that's down in Southern Ohio in the beginning of in the midst of, uh, of Appalachia. And in that role, I had both an academic side, but I also was the administrator for a 55-person multi-specialty uh, physician practice that was part of the practice plan, and the physicians also taught in the medical school. And we had uh, five locations, 
And it was, again, quite interesting and challenging because Southeast Ohio, as I mentioned earlier, is Appalachia, but it's also some of the poor areas. So uh, we were in a position where we had counties we were covering where people were living in trailers and in small little areas and where there were no hospitals in a particular county. So we had to deliver healthcare in all different ways. And that's where I got my also my first exposure because I was also during this time period um, an executive director of a, a community organization that basically focused on population health back in the late 90s before you called it population health. But we all sort of collaborated together in the region to provide to try to provide ways to improve the health status of the people in the community. Then uh, after that, um, I we returned to the Cleveland area uh, because of family health issues, and uh, I got into and I started my own healthcare consulting company, where I had diverse clients, both on the payer side, provider side, employers, and at but I also became of counsel with Baker Hostetler, and I'm still with them on a part-time basis in healthcare law. And then for the last 17 years, besides doing the consulting and legal, I've been uh, a professor of health economics at Baldwin Wallace University, as well as director of their uh, healthcare business programs. So it's uh, been a fun journey and um, God willing, I'm not done with it yet either. <laughs> That's good to know. Now, you continue to wear a lot of hats today. Um, you touch a lot of different aspects of healthcare. One of those is that you're a professor of healthcare economics. Um, just to give a background of our listeners, many of them are healthcare professionals, many of them are practice administrators, and they deal with the business of healthcare on the micro level. So when I hear something like you're a professor of healthcare economics, what can they learn from you? I mean, what, what are some of the issues from that macro level um, that you guys are talking about in your classes? Uh, what are some of the issues that are most important to those students? Well, I'm going to start off by using that analogy I gave earlier about the puzzle. And really, it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. But when you think about it, really, not just for uh, the people at MGMA and people that attend the conferences and that, but uh, each of everybody sort of is um, sort of a puzzle piece. But like a puzzle, uh, especially when it comes down to healthcare, there are so many other pieces. And if you just focus on your narrow or small piece, uh, you're losing a lot of potential great growth opportunities for you personally, but also having even much more of a greater impact on your organization. So that, you know, you could be a physician and all you're doing is focusing on me being a physician, but let's face it, you're impacted by all different sides and areas of healthcare. You could be somebody working in managed care. You could be somebody working in a physician office in revenue cycle, and you think to yourself, okay, I'm in this role, but guess what? I'm impacted by the payer side. I'm impacted by what's happening with Medicare. I'm impacted what's happening with Medicaid, the commercial side, the evolution of employers, consumers becoming more 
uh, prudent purchasers of healthcare services. But then over and above that, I'm also impacted on health on a health policy side at the state and federal level. And, you know, because a lot of those both affect reimbursement, but also regulations in those, uh, those types of areas. And then when you think about it too, you know, over and above that, we are all very much aware of the changes in demographics that are occurring, the aging baby boomer, people extension of life, the millennials and all their different ways of, you know, focusing on healthcare. All of those are impacting my piece of the puzzle. And then you add to that, which is evolving like crazy, is changes in science and technology. So the, the bottom line message I get from the students, and we talk about in class, no matter what your role is, including in the physician office, is that you can't just narrowly focus and have your head in the ground in regards to the particular role that you have. To really allow yourself to grow, to really allow yourself to have a bigger impact, you have to have a much broader and better understanding of those areas that, as I just discussed, that impact you. Now that doesn't mean you need to be an expert in all those areas, but you need to have an understanding and understanding it, especially as it relates to your particular organization. Mm -hmm. um, now, as far as your students are concerned, are they the typical 18 to 22 year old, or are they business professionals who have been out in the field and then they're, uh, you know, adding some more tools to their toolbox? What, who are we talking about here? Well, actually, Daniel, what, what is so great about this is uh, I just mentioned about the puzzle. Well, we have the puzzle uh, pieces in our classroom setting. So bottom line, we have students from the hospital world, and they could be from the Cleveland Clinic or University Hospitals, the big hospital systems in our area. They could be from the health insurance side. They could be from medical device side. They could be, um, they're all working professionals, age range 25 to late 50s. Um, they could be from medical, uh, the biotech, pharma, employer side from a benefit standpoint, uh, consultants, you name it, long-term care, and so we have, and what's so great, is all of these people in different forms represented in the classroom. And then you have diversity even more because they're different skill sets. So we'll have 20% of our students are physicians. We will have students that are practice administrators, for an example, on the physician side. But then we'll have people on, who are IT, we have people that are marketing, um, uh, that are, have uh, researchers and that. So that diversity allows for uh, an environment where people sort of bounce off of each other as we talk about the real world of healthcare and the issues, and you know, both from a business standpoint, but also from an industry standpoint. So what's great too for me personally is both myself and other faculty, as this discussion classroom types occur during the learning process, you're learning from all of these students. So they're also, this discussion is part of my resources that I use for the blogs I do and podcasts because I'm, I'm sort of like, am I the professor or the student? Mm -hmm. Really, it's sort of interesting. Yeah, that was the next question I was going to ask you. It just sounds like the way you were talking about it, that 
even though you're in the role of the teacher here, you're learning as well. What are, what are some of the more interesting things you've learned from students recently about the challenges that they're facing in healthcare? Well, it, in some ways, and I think, you know, people, you know, in all areas, including with, uh, you know, specifically tied with physician practices, understand this. The core message across all these sectors, I don't care what it is, is a recognition that from a societal standpoint, we can no longer sort of finance the healthcare system as it exists today and as it relates to the escalating trends that we're seeing, you know, in the past. Um, and I don't care if you're the payer side, provider side, medical device, uh, you know, long-term care or any of those sectors. So the, they're recognizing the financial challenges in so many different ways. And they're recognizing that they need to do something about it. So in many ways, I'm finding in the classroom setting, as we talk about case studies, as we talk about just the interchange of knowledge, is one of the key ways to be able to help address this is um, players that usually don't really uh, work together well, payers and providers, for an example, really need to recognize we have a common issue here. And in this case, for an example, on a physician side uh, or physician practice, your patients happen to be, in effect, customers of the payer side, the health insurance side. That could be a commercial carrier. That could be Medicare or Medicaid. Well, you know, there's a shared level of, you know, sort of both challenge, but also we need to provide value to that individual. So the best way to do this as much as possible is through collaborative initiatives. So there needs to be a recognition and an outreach ongoing between, you know, in this case, physician practices and say the local provide, uh, payers in the community and working with them to try to find a way to be able to provide better value to their members and your patients. Mm-hmm. Now, you had mentioned your blog earlier, and that's actually how you and I met. You're a prolific writer on healthcare topics. Um, I found you on LinkedIn. Just for our, our audience, where, where can they find you? Is LinkedIn the best way, or is, it, is there a website to point them to? Where can they find your writings? Well, probably the best way to get uh, is through LinkedIn and, you know, just going under uh, Thomas Campanella. And, uh, and then, you know, that's the best way. And as you said, I write on um, – diverse areas of healthcare from all different perspectives. And that ties into that puzzle analogy that I talked about. And I will add links to the podcast, uh, I mean, to the, um, the, uh, the blogs, which will allow the reader, if they so desire, to sort of further deep dive either into past issues or to other resources that they can use. So it really turns into a quite the educational tool. And then recently, similar to what I'm doing now, I do podcasts, including video podcasts, which are also a lot of fun. And they can also be found on LinkedIn. And, um, and then, you know, I've been doing uh, a lot of different interviews with uh, different uh, newspapers on a both local, regional, and national, including just recently, I was interviewed in a, by a Columbus newspaper uh, about healthcare related to the millennials in a Blue Cross report. 
and that was just recently translated to French and is now over in France, which hmm. for me is kind of cool. That is and cool. And so it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So what are you working on right now? Do you have a blog in front of you, a new idea that you're trying to explore? Well, the two areas is, um, and it really ties into, you know, maybe down the road. I definitely want to keep deep diving and be a champion of healthcare transparency. And I've written and talked about it in, a di- in many different ways. And in many ways, transparency on the cost and quality, but especially cost side, is really the fuel for a lot of the disruption that we're seeing in healthcare. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, focusing on that. But then at a more macro level policy side, uh, things like issues related to Medicare for all and that, you know, I try to uh, address the issues as much as one can in an objective way, addressing both the positives and the negatives and allow the reader to come to their own conclusion. But I'm working on, I've already done one on Medicare for all versus something like Medicare Advantage and more of the market system. And I plan on doing a few more since it's becoming, you know, it's uh, more of a hot political uh, uh, issue in this, especially in the primary season. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something, uh, disruptions, Um, disruptions in healthcare. That is actually a topic that you're going to speak on at the financial conference that MGMA is putting on in March. Uh, let's define that for a moment. Uh, what is a healthcare disruption to you? What are we talking about here? Well, I'm going to use it in uh, very simple terms, and it ties into what I've previously talked about. You know, we as a society recognize there's a scarcity of resources. And what it means is, as a scarcity of resources, um, you know, we have so many different um, societal priorities from education, national defense, economics, and that. Well, the point is, as relates to healthcare, we as a society across the board, not only have really determined we no longer can kick the can down the road like we've been doing for so many years as it relates to healthcare and addressing healthcare cost issues. So finally, uh, on all sides, you know, on the payer side, you're talking about Medicare uh, evolving from, um, you know, a, a traditional Medicare to Medicare Advantage. So really, they're evolving from passive purchaser of healthcare services to a more of an active one as it relates to Medicare Advantage and narrow networks. Medicaid traditional to um, Medicaid managed care, which is much more of a hands-on managed care effort to address Medicaid. You have um, more and more employers going self-insured, and they're creating the fuel for, hey, where they're demanding value. That's basically saying, you know, status quo, you know, when you think about disruption, you're basically saying, okay, you're disrupting something, and the something is the status quo. So really disruption is, uh, in effect, uh, upending the apple cart, if you want to say, of the status quo system of healthcare. And, um, and then you have consumers, for an example, you know, they're more and more with health savings accounts and that becoming more prudent purchasers, including the millennials. And all of those are coming at it from different ways, but they're, you know, in effect demanding 
that you know that value as it relates to healthcare, and um, and that ties into where you know I mentioned before about transparency. All of those players, including the government, as you know, because there's been a lot of debate on that, as well as employers, as well as consumers, are now saying, you know, you no longer can hide prices, the actual prices of healthcare, because we're not going to be able to shop and create more value and create a more competitive environment if we have blinders on our eyes. So that's why you're seeing this big push, but also this will open up a lot of opportunities, especially for uh, creative and value-based physician practices to really uh, potentially be a disruptor themselves. Mm -hmm. Let's go over a few more of those then. What are some of the biggest disruptors that you're seeing um, really hitting and impacting the, the healthcare industry right now? Well, first of all, the, the one that's really getting hit the most, when you think about uh, healthcare um, historically, uh, who was, uh, what particular stakeholder is really the, uh, the key player in all that? It's been hospitals. And, um, and what this is doing is when you see the trends, and it's occurred over the last five years and it'll continue in the future, hospital in, inpatient admissions are going down and the patients going into the hospital are, uh, have, are much more acute. They have much more uh, high risk factors, if you wanna put it that way. And hospitals on the inpatient side are actually evolving to centers of excellence. So they're actually competing against other hospitals in other regions. But the growth area, what really sets the stage for disruption in different forms is the outpatient arena, as well as care in the home setting, which I call the new frontier of healthcare. So think about the outpatient arena. If you were um, a competitor trying to come in to compete against hospitals, for an example, on the inpatient side, you know, the, your ability to build a new hospital on the inpatient side within a community would be not only a great challenge from a resource standpoint, but you're really bucking the reputation and status quo of an organization that has been there obviously for many, many years. So it, it, it's almost impossible. On the other hand, in the outpatient arena, there are so many different disruptors, for-profit, non-profit, you know, across all different types of services in outpatient and all of, you know, the listeners are very much aware both on a personal as well as from a business standpoint of all the services that are provided on the outpatient basis. All of those are susceptible to competition, either from niche players, regional players, local players, national players in all different forms. And then you add to this, which as I mentioned earlier, the big focus on care in the home setting and the advances in technology and science that allows that to occur, you even have any more competitors. So that's why I'm saying hospitals are actually in many ways the most vulnerable and it is much more critical for them than ever before to really evolve themselves to become a disruptor in their own way and to create value in the marketplace. Otherwise, they're going to be very susceptible to uh, very large market-based losses, especially in the outpatient and, and care in the home setting arena. Mm -hmm. 
Are there any other uh, disruptors you want to touch on right now before we move on? Well, you know, disruptors too. You have payers, for an example, the Blue Cross plans, the um, United Healthcare, and that. All of them are, um, a lot of them are getting involved on the provider side primary care, clinics, physicians, and everything. And so those are obviously doing disruptors. You have, um, you know, organizations like, um, you know, Paladina Health is an example. I'm just throwing it out. But they're doing on-site clinics directly with employers on a national basis, competing against local providers and directing care. And that's, you know, and that potentially creates a lot of challenges, but potentially opportunities for players in local arenas because they have to have other relationships with other providers to be able to direct care. So there's potential collaboration and partnerships there. And then, you know, I'm, you know, the other key message I'm getting across here to everybody, including the people that may be listening to this, is uh, because it is disruption, the, when people say the day of the independent, um, you know, uh, physician practice is dead. Uh, I'm actually saying no, it's actually, I think, going to start growing in the other direction because I think physician practices, you know, especially the medium sized to larger, maybe some of the small ones, you know, either through collaborations on their own or that, have a tremendous business opportunity in a value based, transparent world to be successful. Yeah. You're going to be speaking at the financial conference on disruptors, but the interesting spin you have on that is that you really do believe there are opportunities there. So let's talk about that in more detail. Where are the opportunities? Why do you have such a bullish attitude on that, that there will be growth for the independent? Okay, well, here's an example. Um, you know, and independent in different forms, but let's me initially focus on independent primary care practices, which everybody feels that, you know, oh my God, it's the end of it. Well, when you think about it, one is, and the data and research is showing it, I talked about the growth in Medicare Advantage plans. Well, Medicare Advantage uh, represents about 33% of seniors are in Medicare Advantage plans and about 80 to 90% of baby boomers, my generation, uh, which turned 65, 10,000 of them every day, uh, well, Medicare Advantage is growing like crazy. And, uh, and most of them are picking those baby boomers, Medicare Advantage plans. So you could see Medicare Advantage going up to 40, 45%, 50% in you know X number of years from now. Well, the point is the data has shown that as they take risks, they're in a position where, uh, you know, with the government, they're in a position where they need to be able to start partnering with players in the marketplace. And one of the most successful ones over the last few years have been independent primary care practices. And the idea there is there, there is some form of risk taken, but in a collaborative way with them. But one of the reasons why the data has shown it's been successful is these independent practices really have no allegiance, you know, in effect to a mother house, if you want to use that terminology, where they can refer to who they feel is best out there, both from a physician specialty standpoint as well as hospital. And so consequently, 
the partnership with Medicare Advantage as the payer and a physician practice is a real fuel for primary care practices to grow and as well to collaborate with each other. And then the other part of it is that, you know, in the same uh, sort of uh, school of thought is that self-insured employers at different sides, as they look to and see the data and they're trying to keep people healthy, they're saying to themselves, well, primary care is really, you know, the place where, you know, um, when you think of all the specialties, when you think of population health, when you think of um, being in a position of value-based health, being able to manage risk, uh, being able to engage the patient, be able to educate, well, what specialty sort of rolls off your tongue when you think about all those terms? It's the primary care practice. And the independent practice, if they're value-based, if they have the right pieces and parts can play an unbelievable role. And really that's where the marketplace is going. They're looking for, you know, from the employer, Medicaid, Medicare side of it all and consumers, you know, you know, sort of that advocacy, uh, no allegiance, you know, type role. So that creates a lot of opportunities from a specialist standpoint, again, depending on the particular specialty in a region, you know, under transparency, you know, you could be an orthopedic practice and you have a clinic in the area or something like that. Well, you may be able to show that, you know what, uh, are the knees that we do, uh, the hip replacements we do, or other types of areas, you know, of orthopedic type specialties, we can do at a much lower price is as good, if not qu better quality, because there may be lower infection rates than the competition. And now they have an audience that's willing to listen to them because they have, again, self-insured employers, the Medicare and Medicaid and that. So where I'm coming from in here is back to that puzzle analogy is that you may have had providers, including independent providers, may have had value before, but the other side, the payer side, wasn't in a position that they really recognized it. Now they're recognizing it and are searching for it and that's where the opportunity is when you start doing those linkages. So that's why I really believe the future is bright in that arena. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that a primary care group can do to differentiate themselves or stand out, you know, above the competition? There's going to be a lot of people trying to seize that space or to, um, you know, market to or position themselves for that aging demographic. So what do they do to make sure that they're the ones that capitalize on it? Well, first of all, if you are indeed a value proposition like this, um, you know, it's one, it's, it's both perceived and actual. So in other words, you could have that primary care practice can have a lot of actual value, but the perceived part is critical. And the perceived part means that one, you gotta be able to tell your story, but you gotta tell your story also to the right players. So, it's, and be strategic about it. So your local uh, payers, you may have a local Blue Cross plans and number of other insurance players. Well, you need to go to them with data, you know, that's where data comes in and be able to demonstrate the value that you have and maybe even be in a position where you're willing to take risk or some type of form of incentives 
to be able to do it. Sometimes that'll be walking before you run. Uh, the same thing with the local manage, uh, Medicare Advantage plans or others. So in other words, you gotta be out there and doing that type of outreach. You also need to recognize that, uh, and I've written about this before, is that social determinants of health, you know, because when you think of primary care, it's really about keeping people healthy, as I said, and that's really, if, you, if you're trying, if you're looking for best quality and you're looking for lower costs, nothing better than to keep somebody healthy. And so in doing that, part of that is educating the consumer or the patient. So to be able to have on your staff, for an example, if by based on your demographics and data that you have a lot of people that might have diabetes or you might have a senior population, you know, or maybe certain types of cancer. Well, you might have a diabetes educator on staff, or maybe you do a collaboration with a third party, including potentially with mental health providers. You don't necessarily have to have everybody in the physician practice being employed. It might be a collaborative effort because, for an example, mental health and behavioral health and clinical are always tied together, and that ties into uh, overall, you know, keeping somebody healthy. And then from a social determinant standpoint, there's a lot of, um, you know, people are impacted uh, health status-wise from a lot of factors outside of medical services. And so being aware of nonprofit players, for-profit, uh, you know, or, um, you know, city health departments and at the services that they offer, the ability to be able to refer, the ability to have a relationship with them, and in some ways that could be even a collaborative effort. So you really, it can't be business as usual. I'll keep echoing that. Collaboration, so you don't necessarily need to have, you know, own everybody or have everybody employed, but there's a lot of pieces of those puzzles out there that as a primary care practice, if you can find ways to bring it all together and then you tie that into, uh, you know, EHRs, you know, electronic health records and that, to be able to have both the clinical and maybe even social determinants aspects of patients, I think it can really be a win-win and send a real strong message in the marketplace. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned that practices really need to be able to tell their story. Um, do you have a story of a practice that you could share with us that has, you know, kind of seen the disruptions in healthcare coming their way and have seized that opportunity and and, and found a success story out of it? Well, uh, there's a lot of examples. I don't want to get in too detail, but, um, but an example, in the, in, you know, there is a little practice that was in Sandusky, which is a small, smaller area of, um, in central, basically in central Ohio. I mean, in um, uh, the northern part of the state, uh, but in the mid part of the state. And it was called, it's called NOMS, N-O-M-S. And while they were small, um, they actually started growing in a very strategic way throughout one of the counties, uh, a few of the counties, and now are actually in Cauga County, and they're competing against a lot of the bigger players. And their focus is um, they do the, you know, the back room, they own some physician practices or they have relationships with them, strong focus in primary care and some of the independent specialties, but they also have, meta, you know, um, all the different types of services 
from, um, you know, being in a position where um, they have, you know, from CAT scans to you name it, you know, in regards to it, uh, ultrasounds and uh, those types of things and other services. And they've been an effective competitor. And a lot of players have been coming up to them and wanting to, quote, uh, own or buy them. And they've saying, you know, you know what? We're doing, we like our business model and we don't necessarily need to be owned. And we can uh, really have a positive impact. And they have population health, a strong focus on social determinants as part of it. So they're an example. But they, I can tell you there's, I, you know, I can't go on forever, but in Northeast Ohio, there's a number of different things, uh, organizations, you know, from Unity that does a lot of backroom uh, to, to Crystal Clinic that is involved in orthopedics and started their own orthopedic practice. So there's a lot of different interesting things that are occurring out there in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Are there any uh, final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience on how they can uh, seize opportunity and disruptions in healthcare? Yeah, I. I think the big thing is all of us, you know, change can be uncomfortable. I don't care if it's a personal life or work life. And, um, and I think one, they need to embrace this new world and recognize that it can't be business as usual, but also recognize that this is a tremendous opportunity, both for them and their organization, because bluntly in times of disruption, in times of change, both people and organizations that can, dis- that can demonstrate perceived and actual value, both to their employers or to the community at large, have an unbelievable chance to be successful. And when you think about it, it when it's not disruptive, then all of a sudden it really is sort of that business as usual and you know, you're sort of like lost in the crowd and you could be really the best employee or, you know, the best organization and people aren't really, you know, sort of making any changes and you're not really recognized for the value you bring. But because of these challenges, that's where the opportunity is. So my message to everybody that's listening is you need to grab onto this and basically say, this is my window of opportunity to make a difference. And this is a window of opportunity to really allow myself to advance as well as to my, my organization to advance and make a difference. Tom Campanella, professor and director of healthcare business programs at Baldwin Wallace University. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel. As you can tell, I love healthcare. And, uh, and, I, and a lot of that is because of all the types and different types of people that work in it. We have a common purpose to try to make the world better. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guests, Craig Weberg and Tom Campanella. You can see all this year's financial conference has to offer, including Tom's session on disruption in healthcare, March 5th through 7th in Nashville. To learn more or take advantage of early bird registration, visit mgma.com TFC20. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at mgma daniel. 
MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.